Pray with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach a topic this morning of praying during adversity, we pray for all those who may be struggling this morning. We pray, God, that these words this morning, your words spoken through me may help someone here, that we can be a praying church, and in that prayer we include praying for those who are dealing with difficulty. God, thank you for who you are. Had it not been for you, we'd never be here. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So this morning I went to Stripes to get my cup of coffee. Actually, I should say I went to Stripes intending to get coffee, but um, the gentleman in front of me was holding the coffee machine hostage. JD, you ever had that experience where you're trying to get in there and the counter's right there next to it, and so they, you know, they kind of hoard it. And uh, I came up behind this gentleman, and he had a large cup of coffee. He got about a third of his cup filled with coffee. Then he moved to the counter and he put in all the ingredients, the creamer and the, you know, NutraSweet, whatever it was that he was putting in it. Then he went back to the coffee machine and he put more coffee in. Then he went back to the counter and doctored it up some more. Then he went back to the coffee machine and filled it to the brim. And then he took a drink of it and he winced and he goes, perfect. And he walked off. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a pure black coffee drinker. I don't want my coffee destroyed by these toxins that you can put in it. I want it pure, the the blacker, the darker, the more bitter, the better. The other day, I learned the longest order at Starbucks is this. Maybe you heard this too. The longest order at Starbucks is the double ristretto, venti, half soy, non-fat, decaf, organic chocolate brownie, iced vanilla, double shot gingerbread, frappuccino, extra hot with foam whipped cream, upside down, double blended, one sweet and low, and one NutraSweet with ice. That is the longest possible order you can get at Starbucks. Never ordered that. I mean, at what point does it stop being coffee, right? I don't go to Starbucks often, but when I go, you know what I get? Small cup of coffee. Do you mean tall? No, I mean take the smallest cup you got and put coffee in it. Do you want room for cream and sugar? No, I don't want any of that. I just want black coffee. Now, Starbucks black coffee has been known to take the chrome off your bumper, but I'm okay with that, right? The darker, the more bitter, the better, in my opinion. Last week, we began a series connecting my love for coffee with my love for prayer. As I said, in 13 years of preaching, you got to find some pretty creative ways to preach on some standard topics. And I realized that uh, we hadn't talked about prayer a lot, and I think we need to. And so I'm trying to figure out a way to, you know, make it relevant, something that will hold your attention. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, I love coffee, I love prayer. I often combine those two in my morning uh, routine. And so here we are. We're talking about espresso mainly, which is a form of coffee that you get by forcing water at high pressure through coffee ground, coffee beans, and uh, what you get, what you get extracted is um, concentrated amounts of coffee that are powerful, that packs a powerful punch, that's rich in flavor, and that's what prayer is. At least it should be. Prayer should be flavorful. And it should pack a powerful punch. You know as well as I do that life can be bitter sometimes. Just like coffee, life can be bitter. 
And some people try to combat the bitterness of coffee with certain add-ins. That's why you have ristrettos and macchiatos, and I get it. I mean, some of that is good. I like a good caramel macchiato. But we do this in life as well. Some people try to manage the bitterness of life by by adding certain things, and not all of those things are good. Some of them are, you know, really bad for you, like drugs and alcohol. Those are added to get rid of the bitterness. Some people engage in all sorts of illicit behaviors because that removes the depression. And then there are those people who turn to God and turn to prayer And because this is a series on prayer, I'm going to advocate that that's what you do. That when it comes to the bitterness of life and dealing with adversity, that you turn to God and that you fight the battle on your knees. Remember Nehemiah? Remember Nehemiah was this fearless leader who was leading the charge to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls, but he wasn't without his critics. Remember Sambalat and Tobiah? You know, they... They mocked him, they, they had sarcasm, and, and, and they, they tried their best to thwart his rebuilding efforts. Notice chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, it came about that when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy people of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore the temple for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the heaps of rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, Even what they are building, if a fox were to jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. Sambalat and Tobiah were a big problem. And that problem had to be dealt with. So what does the fearless leader Nehemiah do? Thrust a spear through them? Lop off their head, throw them in prison? Notice what he does. Hear, O our God, how we are an object of contempt. Return their taunting on their own heads and turn them into plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their guilt and do not let their sin be wiped out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Leaders fight back. Leaders lash out. Leaders assert their will and they confront the problem. But Nehemiah shows us how a godly leader truly reacts. He had a mission. He had a task to complete. And so he places his trouble in God's hands. And he teaches us something very important, very crucial when it comes to our prayer life. And that is we are never stronger than when we are on our knees. Nehemiah fought the battle on his knees. and It made all the difference. Remember Daniel? Remember uh, at the urging of the prefects and the satraps how King Darius made a decree that anyone who bowed down to any other god or gods other than the king would face the lion's den? Do you remember Daniel's response? If you don't, I'll give it to you. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the document was signed, he entered his house and in his roof chamber he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and offering praise before his God, just as he had been doing previously. Daniel's knee-jerk reaction was to hit his knees. And I love that last line, just as he had been doing previously. Daniel didn't only go to God when he was in trouble or when he needed something. He had been going to God all along. 
And therefore, when tragedy struck, when there was a crisis situation, he just did what he'd always done before. He shows us something very important when it comes to prayer and handling life, and that is how we respond to a crisis is more important than the crisis. What is happening to you is not nearly as important as what is happening in you. Daniel did what he had always done before. He hit his knees. His knee-jerk response was to go to his knees. Old habits die hard. If you, if you have developed a habit of regular prayer, then when you're in a crisis situation, the first place you're going to do is turn to where you've always turned. We will respond how we have been trained to respond. One of the best young men I ever coached was a young man named Timmy Bullington. He's now an athletic director at a school in Arkansas. He was my best player. He was a, a young man that we relied on heavily. If he didn't play well, we didn't win. And one night we were playing a game out of town, and he missed a couple of free throws during the course of the game. It wasn't at the end. It was during the course of the game. We ended up losing that game by a couple of points, and he felt responsible. He wasn't. I mean, he scored probably 25, 30 points like he always did, but he missed two free throws and felt that the loss was his fault. And so we got home that night. It was late. It was about midnight. I lived across the street on the highest point in Charlotte, Arkansas. The tornado siren was in my yard. And so I lived right across the street from the gym. I had gotten home. I got settled in, about to go to bed, and my doorbell rang. I answered it. It was Timmy. He said, Coach, can I have the keys to the gym? I said, sure. I threw them to him. About an hour went by, and I went to check on him. Went down the gym. You know what he was doing? Shooting free throws. He had been down there for an hour, and I don't know how long he was going to stay. Anyone who has played basketball or knows anything about basketball, you know that the free throw line can win you or lose you some games, which is why you practice. And you practice over and over again so that it becomes routine and habit. You want it to be automatic. Now, you also probably know that there's a big difference in making free throws or shooting free throws in an empty gym when there's no crowd and there's no pressure and you're not tired, which is why you focus on shooting free throws at the end of practice when you are tired, when, when, you, when you need it to be automatic the most when the pressure is on, but you go through the same routine over and over again. You practice and practice and practice so that when the time comes and the pressure is on, you're ready. The same is true with prayer. You don't just go to God when things are going bad. You go to God in regular intervals. You make it automatic. So that like Daniel, when a crisis moment appears, you just go back to doing what you've always done before. That was Daniel. That was my, my uh, ball player Timmy, who, who showed me that as well. And that should be us. We don't wait until the pressure is on to tap into the power of God. We just keep doing what we've always done. And we get stronger by bowing lower. It's like the little boy who decided he wanted to wash his cat. So he went to the grocery store and bought some Tide laundry detergent. And the cashier said, well, aren't you a sweet boy? You run errands for your mother. Are you also going to help her do the laundry? And he goes, oh, no, this isn't for the laundry. I'm buying this to wash my cat. And the cashier tried to encourage him not to use Tide laundry detergent to wash his cat. But he didn't listen. A few days later, he comes back into the grocery store. He goes to pay for something. The cashier says, well, how's your cat? Did you get him clean? And the boy just hung his head. He said, my cat died. And she said, really, was it the Tide laundry detergent? He said, no, I think it was the spin cycle on the dryer. But <laughs> many, many of you here 
know about living life in the spin cycle. You've been there or you're there right now. Life spins, it's chaotic, and you don't know what to do. You're struggling to find a way out. You want to stop the spinning. And you hear somebody like me say, well, you just need to pray about it. And you say, well, why? That didn't do any good. I mean, why would I pray? I've been praying all this time and nothing's changed. And there are many Christians who get disenchanted with prayer because they feel like their, their petitions to God aren't getting past the ceiling tiles. And so they give up on prayer. They're looking for some flavor, but all they taste is bitterness. So with that in mind, I, I want to share with you some additives that I hope will bring some flavor to your prayer life and help you to remove the bitterness. And the first thing that I would say is this. A flavorful prayer life has a lot to do with our approach. might say that has everything to do with it. As I mentioned a moment ago, we can't always control the bitterness that happens to us, but we can control the bitterness that happens in us. And so our approach to prayer means everything. Our attitude when we come to God colors everything in our prayer life. Remember Habakkuk? He's one of those minor prophets that has a major message on prayer. And the theme of Habakkuk is why God? That is the question that forms the message that Habakkuk is, is giving to, to us, and that is, why God? Habakkuk is struggling to wrap his mind around a God that would allow so much evil and so much suffering in the world. He's looking around at the injustice and the idolatry and the immorality that has saturated his world, and he's asking, why God? What kind of God allows this to happen? Habakkuk wants action. He's bringing it to God's attention as if God didn't know it already. He wants God to do something, and he lodges two complaints to God. His first complaint is, life in Israel is unbearable. I can't bear it anymore, God. The Torah is being neglected. This is leading to injustice and immorality and violence, and all of it is being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leadership. Habakkuk is crying out for God to do something, but nothing seems to change. Chapter 1, verse 1 and following, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Now, God hears Habakkuk and he tells Habakkuk that he is very aware of what is going on and he's going to do something. Here's what he's going to do. Look among the nations. Observe, be astonished, wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. God is going to deal with the corruption of Israel by raising up the Babylonians who are going to bring punishment upon the nation. And Habakkuk says, okay, how's that better? How does that fix anything? The Babylonians are worse than the Israelites. So Habakkuk is not completely bought in on God's plan. So that's his second complaint. God, you're just going to make things worse. Notice verses 13 through 17. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. 
and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like the creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away in their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Once again, Habakkuk questions God. How can a holy and righteous God allow such wicked and evil people to accomplish your plans? Doesn't make sense. What kind of God does that? In chapter 1, the prophet cries out, God, I don't understand. In chapter 2, God tells Habakkuk to be patient and wait. And then I want you to notice how Habakkuk responds in chapter 3. In the midst of bitterness, in the midst of adversity and a crisis, Habakkuk prays. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. In the midst of a famine or a drought or violence or whatever travails may take place, Habakkuk says, I will choose joy. Habakkuk's story comes full circle. He began by crying out, why God? Now he concludes with the realization that no matter what the answer is to that question, God is in control and I will trust him. I will find joy in the God of my salvation, he says. Sometimes the fig tree doesn't bloom. Sometimes the olive branch doesn't produce a yield. Sometimes the crops don't produce a harvest. Sometimes there's no sheep in the pen. Sometimes there's no cattle in the stalls. Sometimes our heart gets broken. Sometimes our marriage falls apart. Sometimes the chemo doesn't work. Sometimes we don't know what to do. Sometimes the bad guy wins. Sometimes it seems like life is spinning, spinning out of control. And What do you do? Where do you turn? Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. You know what happened after Habakkuk prayed that prayer? You know what happened immediately afterwards? Nothing. Zero. Absolutely nothing changed. It would, be, it would be a while before anything would get better. But Habakkuk comes around to the realization that it's going to be okay. That God is in control. He's still living in bitterness. The world around him is still falling apart. Nothing has changed. Not yet. But though nothing had changed on the outside, something had changed on the inside for Habakkuk. He found flavor in the bitterness, and he teaches us how to do the same. I think the first major lesson that this minor prophet shows us is that we need to remember what God has done. In times of great adversity, 
in times of suffering, what does our prayer look like? Well, for one, it should remember what God has done. Chapter 3, verse 2, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I was afraid. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In anger, remember mercy. In essence, Habakkuk says, God, I, I know about you. I remember the stories about you. I've rehearsed those. I know what kind of God you are. I know how you functioned in the past, and therefore I know what you can do in the future. In verses 3 through 7, we see a picture reminiscent of the opening scenes of Micah and Naaman. And when God makes an appearance at Mount Sinai, there's, there's rays flashing from his hand. There's pestilence before him, plague after him. The mountains are shattered. The hills collapse. When God shows up, everyone knows it. Everyone pays attention and everyone is scared. Habakkuk goes back in his mind to what God has done and he says, God, I know you can do that again. You're fully capable of that. So like the prophet, we need to remember what God has done in our past. The Bible shows us the history of a loving God who loves to rescue sinners like you and me. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He has promised that. He has proven that and therefore we should not forget that. But secondly, we need to accept what God is doing. We need to let go of this idea that life should play out perfectly for us. That life should always be fair. The Bible does not guarantee that. In fact, the Bible guarantees quite the opposite, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus was honest enough to say that if you follow me, it's going to be tough and it's not going to be fair. Prayer is not about bending God to our will. Christianity doesn't work because we always get what we want. It works because God always is with us. So we, we look to bend our will to God's will. God said, I'm going to use the Babylonians to destroy your nation. And Habakkuk says, well, how is that better? You're only going to make things worse. Habakkuk didn't understand God's method or God's timing. Maybe we don't either. But he accepted that God was in control and there was hope in that. There was hope in the fact that God was working, even if his working didn't make sense in the moment. So, we remember what God has done, we accept what God is doing, and finally we trust in what God is going to do. No matter what that may be. Trust in what God is going to do. Habakkuk says, I don't understand what's going on and I don't like it. And the Babylonians should be punished. However, he says these words, I heard and my inner parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will attack us. Habakkuk says, I will wait. I don't like it, but I will wait. He accepts the bitterness of the situation because he trusts that God will do something. Which prompts these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no fruit, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. No matter what. Habakkuk says, no matter what happens, no matter what may go wrong, no matter how bad it gets, I'm all in. I'm with you, God. I may question it. I may wonder what's going on, but I'm not turning away. I'm with you. I am all in, and I will serve you even if what I think should be done doesn't happen, even if my best interests don't work out. I'm all in with you like Habakkuk. We need to trust an unknown future to a known God. 
Reminds me of the story of the mother who took her little boy. It's a little boy, about three or four years old. She took him out for supper. And when the food came, the little boy asked if he could lead the prayer. The mother was kind of surprised, but she said, yeah, sure you can. The little boy prays, dear God, thank you for this food. I will thank you even more if mom gets me dessert. And justice for all, amen. Well, the mom chuckled a little bit. Some people that were sitting around laughed. But there was one little lady that didn't think it was that funny. And she walked over to the table and she said, you know, that's what's wrong with this world. We're not teaching our kids how to pray right. Praying for ice cream, come on. And she walked off and the little boy started to cry. He thought he had done something wrong. He said, Mom, is God mad at me? And she tried to assure him, God's not mad at you. And and about that time, a a man walked up who was listening to everything. And he, he walked up to the little boy and he said, I'll have you know that God was very proud of that prayer. And the little boy perked up. He said, really? The man said, yeah, you're okay. And I hope you get some ice cream because ice cream is good for the soul. Well, mom got him some ice cream. And when the waitress brought the ice cream out and set it in front of him, he did something really unexpected. He took that ice cream and he walked over to the little lady. And he set it in front of her. He said, here you go. Ice cream's good for the soul. Folks, I love you to death. I do. I truly love you. And I want what's best for you. And I hope that you understand that I am not trying to sell you on something this morning. I'm not trying to sell you on the fact that that life is easy and you just need to pray about it and get over it. It's not how this thing works. Some of you are going through or have gone through or will go through some things that I I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Our church family has gone through a lot in the last year and a half with COVID, losing folks, dealing with difficulty, with sickness and things of that nature. I'm not trying to, to sell you on the idea that that's easy. It's not. And you're going to pray and you're going to get done praying about it and you're still going to be sad and you're still going to be upset and you're still going to deal with the pain of that. So please hear me. I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to diminish in any way the struggle. But what other option do you have, right? The best plan is to take it to God, to remember what he has done, to remember what he can do, and what, allow him to work, and then let him work. And re- And as hard as it is, try to keep in mind that there's a bigger picture involved here. This isn't as good as it gets. This is where we practice, right? This is where we practice. This is the dress rehearsal so that when Jesus comes back, we get the full realization of all that we read about and all that we talked about that that there's something better. So if we can help you this morning. If you're struggling, if you need the prayers of this church family, maybe you're ready to take the next step in faith. If you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, if you're ready to to get back on track and do a U-turn, God allows U-turns, whatever your need is, let us help you. Come as we stand and as we sing.